Section four of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant, translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. First part, Elements of Pure Practical Reason, Book One, The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason, Chapter One, Of the Principles of Pure Practical Reason, Theorem Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The autonomy of the will is the sole principle of all moral laws and of all duties which conform to them. On the other hand, heteronomy of the elective not only cannot be the basis of any obligation, but is, on the contrary, opposed to the principle thereof and to the morality of the will. In fact, the sole principle of morality consists in the independence on all matter of the law, namely, a desired object, and in the determination of the elective, will, by the mere universal legislative form of which it is a maxim, must be capable. Now, this independence is freedom in the negative sense, and this self-legislation of the pure, and therefore practical, reason, is freedom in the positive sense. Thus, the moral law expresses nothing else than the autonomy of the pure practical reason, that is, freedom, and this is itself the formal condition of all maxims, and on this condition only can they agree with the supreme practical law. If, therefore, the matter of the volition, which can be nothing else than the object of a desire that is connected with the law, enters into the practical law as the condition of its possibility, there results heteronomy of the elective will, namely, dependence on the physical law that we should follow some impulse or inclination. In that case the will does not give itself the law, but only the precept how rationally to follow pathological law, and the maxim which, in such a case, never contains the universally legislative form, not only produces no obligation, but is itself opposed to the principle of a pure practical reason, and therefore also to the moral disposition, even though the resulting action may be conformable to the law. Hence a practical precept, which contains a material and therefore empirical condition, must never be reckoned a practical law. For the law of the pure will, which is free, brings the will into a sphere quite different from the empirical, and as the necessity involved in the law is not a physical necessity, it can only consist in the formal conditions of the possibility of a law in general. All the matter of a practical rules rests on subjective conditions, which give them only a conditional universality, in case I desire this or that, what must I do in order to obtain it? And they all turn on the principle of private happiness. Now, it is indeed undeniable that every volition must have an object, and therefore a matter, but it does not follow that this is the determining principle and the condition of the maxim, for if it is so, then this cannot be exhibited in a universally legislative form, since in that case the exception of the existence of the object would be the determining cause of the choice, and the volition must presuppose the dependence of the faculty of desire on the existence of something. But this dependence can only be sought in empirical conditions, and, therefore, can never furnish a foundation for a necessary and universal rule. Thus the happiness of others may be the object of the will of a rational being. But if it were the determining principle of the maxim, we must assume that we find not only a rational satisfaction in the welfare of others, but also a want such as a sympathetic disposition in some men occasions. 
but I cannot assume the existence of this want in every rational being, not at all in God. The matter, then, of the maxim may remain, but it must not be the condition of it, else the maxim could not be fit for a law. Hence the mere form of law, which limits the matter, must also be a reason for adding this matter to the will, not for presupposing it. For example, let the matter be my own happiness. This rule, if I attribute it to every one, as in fact I may, in the case of every finite being, can become an objective practical law only if I include the happiness of others. Therefore the law that we should promote the happiness of others does not arise from the assumption that this is an object of every one's choice, but merely from this, that the form of universality which reason requires is the condition of giving to a maxim of self-love the objective validity of a law, is the principle that determines the will. Therefore it was not the object, the happiness of others, that determined the pure will, but it was the form of law only, by which I restricted my maxim, founded on inclination, so as to give it the universality of a law, and thus to adapt it to the practical reason. And it is this restriction alone, and not the addition of an external spring, that can give rise to the notion of the obligation to extend the maxim of my self-love to the happiness of others. Remark 2. The direct opposite of the principle of morality is, when the principle of private happiness is made the determining principle of the will, and with this is to be reckoned, as I have shown above, everything that places the determining principle which is to serve as a law, anywhere but in the legislative form of the maxim. This contradiction, however, is not merely logical, like that which would arise between rules empirically conditioned, if they were raised to the rank of necessary principles of cognition, but is practical, and would ruin morality altogether, were not the voice of reason in reference to the will so clear, so irrepressible, so distinctly audible, even to the commonest men. It can only indeed be maintained in the perplexing speculations of the schools, which are bold enough to shut their ears against that heavenly voice, in order to support a theory that costs no trouble. Suppose that an acquaintance whom you otherwise liked were to attempt to justify himself to you for having borne false witness, first by alleging the, in his view, sacred duty of consulting his own happiness, then by enumerating the advantages which he had gained thereby, pointing out the prudence he had shown in securing himself against detection, even by yourself, to whom he now reveals the secret, only in order that he may be able to deny it at any time. And suppose he were then to affirm, in all seriousness, that he has fulfilled a true human duty, you would either laugh in his face, or shrink back from him with disgust. And yet, if a man has regulated his principles of action solely with a view to his own advantage, you would have nothing whatever to object against this mode of proceeding. Or suppose some one recommends you a man as a steward, as a man to whom you can blindly trust all your affairs, and, in order to inspire you with confidence, extols him as a prudent man who thoroughly understands his own interest, and is so indefatigably active that he lets slip no opportunity of advancing it. Lastly, lest you should be afraid of finding a vulgar selfishness in him, praises the good taste with which he lives, not seeking his pleasure in money-making or in coarse wantonness, but in the enlargement of his knowledge, in instructive intercourse with a select circle, and even in relieving the needy, while, as to the means, which, of course, derive all their value from the end, he is not particular, and is ready to use other people's money for the purpose, as if it were his own, provided only he knows that he can do so safely and without discovery, 
you would either believe that the recommender was mocking you, or that he had lost his senses. So sharply and clearly marked are the boundaries of morality and self-love, that even the commonest eye cannot fail to distinguish whether a thing belongs to the one or to the other. The few remarks that follow may appear superfluous, where truth is so plain, but at least they may serve to give a little more distinctness to the judgment of common sense. The principle of happiness may, indeed, furnish maxims, but never such as would be competent to be laws of the will, even if universal happiness were made the object. For since the knowledge of this rests on mere empirical data, since every man's judgment on it depends very much on his own particular point of view, which is itself, moreover, very variable, it can supply only general rules, not universal. That is, it can give rules which, on the average, will most frequently fit, but not rules which must hold good always and necessarily. Hence, no practical laws can be founded on it. Just because, in this case, an object of choice is the foundation of the rule and must therefore precede it, the rule can refer to nothing but what is felt, and therefore it refers to experience and is founded on it, then the variety of judgment must be endless. This principle, therefore, does not prescribe the same practical rules to all rational beings, although the rules are all included under a common title, namely that of happiness. The moral law, however, is conceived as objectively necessary, only because it holds for every one that has reason and will. The maxim of self-love, or prudence, only advises, the law of morality commands. Now, there is a great difference between that which we are advised to do, and that to which we are obliged. The commonest intelligence can easily and without hesitation see what, on the principle of autonomy of the will, requires to be done, but on supposition of heteronomy of the will, it is hard and requires knowledge of the world to see what is to be done. That is to say, what duty is, is plain of itself to every one. But what is to bring true, durable advantage, such as will extend to the whole of one's existence, is always veiled in impenetrable obscurity, and much prudence is required to adapt the practical rule founded on it to the ends of life, even tolerably by making proper exceptions. But the moral law commands the most punctual obedience from every one. It must, therefore, not be so difficult to judge what requires to be done, that the commonest unpractised understanding, even without worldly prudence, should fail to apply it rightly. It is always in every one's power to satisfy the categorical command of morality, whereas it is seldom possible, and by no means so to everybody, to satisfy the empirically conditioned precept of happiness, even with regard to a single purpose. The reason is that in the former case there is question only of the maxim, which must be genuine and pure, but in the latter case there is question also of one's capacity and physical power to realize a desired object. A command that every one should try to make himself happy would be foolish, for one never commands any one to do what he of himself infallibly wishes to do. We must only command the means, or rather supply them, since he cannot do everything that he wishes. But to command morality under the name of duty is quite rational. For in the first place, not every one is willing to obey its precepts if they oppose its inclinations, and as to the means of obeying this law, those need not in this case be taught, for in this respect, whatever he wishes to do, he can do. He who has lost at play may be vexed at himself and his folly, but if he is conscious of having cheated at play, although he has gained thereby, he must despise himself as soon as he compares himself with the moral law. This must, therefore, be something different from the principle of private happiness. 
for a man must have a different criterion when he is compelled to say to himself, I am a worthless fellow, though I have filled my purse. And when he approves himself and says, I am a prudent man, for I have enriched my treasure. Finally, there is something further in the idea of our practical reason, which accompanies the transgression of a moral law, namely, its ill desert. Now, the notion of punishment as such cannot be united with that of becoming a partaker of happiness. For although he who inflicts the punishment may at the same time have the benevolent purpose of directing this punishment to this end, yet it must first be justified in itself as punishment, i.e., as mere harm, so that if it stopped there, and the person punished could get no glimpse of kindness hidden behind this harshness, he must yet admit that justice was done him, and that his reward was perfectly suitable to his conduct. In every punishment as such there must first be justice, and this constitutes the essence of the notion. Benevolence may indeed be united with it, but the man who has deserved punishment has not the least reason to reckon upon this. Punishment, then, is a physical evil, which, though it be not connected with moral evil as a natural consequence, ought to be connected with it as a consequence by the principles of a moral legislation. Now, if every crime, even without regarding the physical consequence with respect to the actor, is in itself punishable, that is, forfeits happiness, at least partially, it is obviously absurd to say that the crime consisted just in this, that he has drawn punishment on himself, thereby injuring his private happiness, which on the principle of self-love must be the proper notion of all crime. According to this view, the punishment would be the reason for calling anything a crime, and justice would, on the contrary, consist in omitting all punishment, and even preventing that which naturally follows, for if this were done, there would no longer be any evil in the action, since the harm which otherwise followed it, and on account of which alone the action was called evil, would now be prevented. To look, however, on all rewards and punishments as merely the machinery in the hand of a higher power, which is to serve only to set rational creatures striving after their final end, happiness, this is to reduce the will to a mechanism destructive of freedom. This is so evident that it need not detain us. More refined, though equally false, is the theory of those who suppose a certain special moral sense, which sense and not reason determines the moral law, and in consequence of which the consciousness of virtue is supposed to be directly connected with contentment and pleasure, that of vice with mental dissatisfaction and pain, thus reducing the whole to the desire of private happiness. Without repeating what has been said above, I will here only remark the fallacy they fall into. In order to imagine the vicious man as tormented with mental dissatisfaction by the consciousness of his transgressions, they must first represent him as in the main basis of his character, at least in some degree, morally good. Just as he who is pleased with the consciousness of right conduct must be conceived as already virtuous. The notion of morality and duty must, therefore, have preceded any regard to this satisfaction, and cannot be derived from it. A man must first appreciate the importance of what we call duty, the authority of the moral law, and the immediate dignity, which the following of it gives to the person in his own eyes, in order to feel that satisfaction in the consciousness of his conformity to it, and the bitter remorse that accompanies the consciousness of its transgression. It is, therefore, impossible to feel this satisfaction or dissatisfaction prior to the knowledge of obligation, or to make it the basis of the latter. 
A man must be at least half honest in order to even be able to form a conception of these feelings. I do not deny that as the human will is, by virtue of liberty, capable of being immediately determined by the moral law, so frequent practice in accordance with this principle of determination can, at least, produce subjectively a feeling of satisfaction. On the contrary, it is a duty to establish and to cultivate this, which alone deserves to be called properly the moral feeling. But the notion of duty cannot be derived from it, else we should have to suppose a feeling for the law as such, and thus make that an object of sensation which can only be thought by the reason. And this, if it is not to be a flat contradiction, would destroy all notion of duty and put in its place a mere mechanical play of refined inclinations, sometimes contending with the coarser. If we now compare our formal supreme principle of pure practical reason, that of autonomy of the will, with all previous material principles of morality, we can exhibit them all in a table in which all possible cases are exhausted, except the one formal principle, and thus we can show visibly that it is vain to look for any other principle than that now proposed. In fact, all possible principles of determination of the will are either merely subjective, and therefore empirical, or are also objective and rational, and both are either external or internal. Practical material principles of determination, taken as the foundation of morality, are subjective, external, education, montagna, the civil, constitution, Hutchison, internal, physical feeling, Epicurus, moral feeling, Hutchison, Mandeville, objective, internal, perfection, Wolfe and the Crucius and other Stoics, external, will of God, theological moralists. Those of the upper table are all empirical and evidently incapable of furnishing the universal principle of morality, but those in the lower table are based on reason, for perfection as a quality of things, and the highest perfection conceived as a substance, that is, God, can only be thought by means of rational concepts. But the former notion, namely, that of perfection, may either be taken in a theoretic signification, and then it means nothing but the completeness of each thing in its own kind, transcendental, or that of a thing merely as a thing, metaphysical, and with that we are not concerned here. But the notion of perfection in a practical sense is the fitness or sufficiency of a thing for all sorts of purposes. This perfection, as a quality of man and consequently internal, is nothing but talent and, what strengthens or completes this, skill. Supreme perfection conceived as substance, that is, God, and consequently external, considered practically, is the sufficiency of this being for all ends. Ends, then, must first be given, relatively to which only can the notion of perfection, whether internal in ourselves or external in God, be the determining principle of the will. But an end being an object which must precede the determination of the will by a practical rule, and contain the ground of the possibility of this determination, and therefore contain also the matter of the will, taken as its determining principle, such an end is always empirical, and therefore may serve for the Epicurean principle of the happiness theory, but not for the pure rational principle of morality and duty. Thus talents and the improvement of them, because they contribute to the advantages of life or the will of God, if agreement with it be taken as the object of the will, without any antecedent independent practical principle, can be motives only by reason of the happiness expected therefrom. 
Hence it follows, first, that all the principles here stated are material, secondly, that they include all possible material principles, and finally the conclusion that since material principles are quite incapable of furnishing the supreme moral law, as has been shown, the formal practical principle, the pure reason, according to which the mere form of a universal legislation must constitute the supreme and immediate determining principle of the will, is the only one possible which is adequate to furnish categorical imperatives, that is, practical laws, which make actions a duty, and in general to serve as the principle of morality, both in criticizing conduct and also in its application to the human will to determine it. End of section 4